Welcome to the Antioch Sheffield podcast. We are so glad that you can join us for today's message. For more information about Antioch Sheffield, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk. Good morning. Welcome, everyone. It's good to see so many faces back in this room. Uh, Since relaunching at Easter, we've kind of been pretty much selling out every week, which is really exciting. Uh, it's become a bit of a competition, I think, in the room now to, to see who can get tickets first. Uh, so good to, to have you back in. Uh, and also, for those of you who are watching online uh, who aren't able to be here, we welcome you. We're so glad that you've tuned in, that you're able to join us. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Ian, uh, and I'm the associate pastor here at Antioch. Um, And I've actually been uh, with Antioch pretty much since I first came to Sheffield for university back in 2006. Um, But I think it's safe to say that I am a very different person to the one who first walked in here uh, back in 2006. So I'm I'm actually uh, a lot more mature than I was back then, which isn't actually a statement to say that I'm particularly mature. As my wife will tell you, I'm really not. Um, It's just a statement to say just I was a pretty immature person who first came to Sheffield. And so, uh, you know, I came to to Sheffield to to study at university. um, And if I'm honest, I I really didn't take my degree particularly seriously. Uh, I saw university as an opportunity to have fun. Um, and obviously, university is an opportunity to have fun, um, but there's a little bit more to it than that, but I, I didn't really focus that much on, on that side of things, and so uh, I just did whatever seemed to be the most fun thing. So I would spend all my time doing sports, going out rock climbing, going hiking. I would uh, spend time with my friends. I'd do uh, playing video games. I was um, staying up late, going to parties, and just doing all these different things, uh, very little of which was actually doing any studying. Um, and so my daily routine actually would often look just simply like, uh, you know, my day would start around lunchtime, which is roughly about when I got up in the morning, slash afternoon, uh, depending on how you look at it. Um, and I'm ashamed to say that this was often actually after some of my lectures had actually taken place. Um, and then it would just be a case of do the, the bare minimum work uh, so that I could then go on to whatever fun thing there was to do that day, uh, something like a, a, a marathon series of uh, 24. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever um, been foolish enough to attempt that, but that was a, a something that I attempted while I was at university um, and wonder why I got up so late the next day. Um, but I actually, uh, you know, I got a, a huge... Um, wake-up call at the end of my first year of university when I actually failed most of my exams. Some of you are probably thinking, well, that's hardly a surprise. Um, but to me, this was like a really big deal. Because, you know, I, I took this and suddenly I was like, I'm, I'm a failure. And in, instantly I was like, I, I, I want to do something else. Like I was finding the quickest route out that I possibly could. You know, I wanted to, to go and do something else, so I began looking for other options and began coming up with excuses as to why uh, I was doing the wrong degree or I was doing the wrong thing. And so I uh, just went down to other avenues and uh, just as a, because this moment of failure made me feel like I was a failure. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of reasons uh, why I chose to behave the way that I did, um, mainly just seated in insecurities and lies that I believed about myself, but that's another message for another time that I don't have to have time to go into today. Um, but, 
you know, this moment just made me feel like such a failure. And I think failure is actually something that we've all experienced in some way, shape, or form, which is why I actually want to take the time to talk about this word, this word failure. So I wonder, as you read that word, what does it stir up in you? What does it make you think about? How does this word make you feel? Maybe as you, as you read it, there's specific moments in your own life that come to mind. But we don't really like this word failure. I think it's safe to say on behalf of pretty much everybody that we don't like failure. We don't like to feel like we are a failure. And yet failure is something that all of us, at some point in our life, have to experience. And at some point in our life, almost definitely, we will experience it again. We, we try to hide our failures. And we, we, kind of, we don't like to kind of deal with them. We don't like to have them out in the open. You know, if you look up the definition of failure, what you'll see is there's, there's actually a, a list of synonyms that can be used in place of them. Words like downfall, flop, inadequacy, loser, washout, and my favorite, turkey. I don't, don't know why that's in there. I'm assuming they're referring to the, the animal, not the country. Um, but, you know, these are words that we, we don't like to have associated with ourselves, right? We don't, none of us want to be associated with these kind of things. We don't like failure. But thankfully, that isn't actually the end of my story. I did, uh, after some persuasion from some um, trusted people around me, choose to finish my degree. I did get a degree. I did pass. Um, and I did move on. Actually, I learned that uh, really university for me was... Uh, just as much about God dealing with my character and the lies that I was believing about myself as it was about uh, me actually getting a degree. But I wonder how many of us have got our own experiences of failure that we still carry with us. Because it's so easy for us to carry these moments of failure with us. I think we try to avoid them, we try to avoid dealing with them, and we definitely try to avoid letting other people see our failures, letting other people see our areas of brokenness, our areas of weakness. Why do we do that? Why do we try to hide them? Well, I think it's because failures are often defining moments for us. So these moments of failure, they can easily define us, who we are, what we believe about ourselves. They can begin to define the decisions that we make in the direction that we go in our lives. Maybe for you, it's it's the same as me. Maybe you failed an exam of some sort, and now you have in your head, I'm just stupid. I don't know how to do this. Maybe for you, it's that you you did something really wrong. And maybe you have in your head, you know, there's no way that I could ever be loved after doing something like this. Maybe it's that you continue to, to make the same mistakes and you, you think, oh, do you know what, I will never be able to change. Maybe you feel like you have failed as a, as a parent, as a father, as a mother, as a husband or a wife. Maybe you feel like you've failed as a friend and there's just no way back to repair and restore that relationship. Maybe you feel like you've walked away from God and and the things that he's called you to and you feel like you've missed your opportunity. 
Or maybe you just simply feel like a second-rate Christian. You know, you don't live up to the standard that you have in your head as to what your life should be like as a good Christian. We've all experienced failure at some point. So the question is, what do we do when we've failed? What do we do with these failures in our lives? See, the world will try and uh, remind us of them. Everywhere we go, when we look in the world and the culture that we're in, it likes to point out our failures. It likes to remind us of them. It likes to keep us in that place of failure. But Jesus actually has a very different approach to failure. And that's what we want to look at today, as we look at this passage which shows just how Jesus handles failure. And so just to recap, over the last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the different stories of people's encounters with Jesus after his resurrection. And so on Easter Sunday, Todd shared with us the story of Mary Magdalene, who was the first person to meet Jesus after he was raised from the dead. And then last week, Lauren shared on the story of Thomas, who doubted that he had actually been raised from the dead. And this week, I actually want to look at the encounter uh, that Peter had with Jesus after his resurrection. But before we get to that, we actually have to start in a slightly different place. We actually have to go back to an incident that happened just before Jesus uh, died on the cross. You see, we find this account in Matthew, and the, the disciples, they've, they've just had their last supper together, uh, and now they're walking to a place called the, the Mount of Olives, uh, and Jesus is just talking to them as they're walking there. It says this in Matthew. It says, On the way, Jesus told them, Tonight, all of you will desert me. For the Scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been raised from the dead... I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. So the, there's this nice, happy conversation going on um, amongst the, the disciples. You know, Jesus is kind of giving some just casual, happy kind of walk and talk conversation where he says, you're all going to desert me. And he's about to die on the cross. Um, but then actually, uh, he also says that he's going to meet them in Galilee after this happens, after he's raised from the dead. And that's important because that's actually where our story picks up later on. But Peter actually doesn't like what he's hearing Jesus say, and so he's insistent that this isn't going to be the case. He says, even if anyone else desert you, I will never desert you. He's basically saying, I know better than everyone. I love you more than everyone. I'm more committed to you than everyone. Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter. This very night, before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted. Even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. I love Peter's passion. I love how he, he wears his heart on his sleeves. I love how he, he's in this moment, he actually thinks he knows better than Jesus. He actually corrects Jesus. Like, no, 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 no. I will never deny you. Just this passion. I genuinely believe that Peter really thinks he will not deny him. He really thinks he, he loves Jesus so much that he could never deny him. But deny him, he did. Just as Jesus said, Peter denied him three times. Later in this same chapter, 
uh, after uh, Peter has already denied Jesus twice, it says this. A little later, some of the other bystanders came over to Peter and said, You must be one of them. We can tell by your Galilean accent. Peter swore, A curse on me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And immediately, the rooster crowed. I love how Jesus goes from passionately insisting that he will die before he denies Jesus to passionately cursing himself as he denies Jesus because he doesn't want to die. It goes on to say this. Suddenly, Jesus' words flashed through Peter's mind. Before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you even know me. And he went away weeping bitterly. He suddenly realizes what he's done. He realizes that he's done the very thing he insisted that he wouldn't. He's betrayed Jesus and denied him. And he's weeping bitterly. He is broken. I really think Peter is just distraught by the fact that he he actually has realized that he could do such a thing to Jesus. I think he really genuinely loved Jesus. But I also think he's feeling the weight of his sin and he's realizing he has blown it. You know, this is the person who Jesus said that he would, he referred to him as the rock upon which he would build his church. This is the one that Jesus had called out and said, he is going to lead my people. He is going to lead the church when I'm gone. Jesus had spent three years discipling this guy, investing in his life. I think we would all expect something better from the future leader of the church in this moment. And Peter blew it. I think he felt in this moment how so many of us feel sometimes. Peter felt like a failure. He's probably thinking, how can I be the one to lead the church when I deny him when he needs me the most? I actually think this is how Peter thought that his story would end. I think Peter thought his story would end with failure. But John actually gives us uh, the account of Jesus' response to Peter's failure. As we fast forward a little, we see that Jesus does die on the cross, and then after three days, he's raised from the dead, and and then uh, the disciples have this encounter with him, and then it says that that they're now in Galilee, which, if you remember, is where Jesus said that he would meet them after he was raised from the dead. So the disciples have gone to Galilee, and and they're not really quite sure of the details. They're not quite sure why they're in Galilee. They're not sure uh, what's going to happen next. And so I think they're just kind of sat around waiting to see when Jesus is going to show up. And and it says that as the the night began to fall, it says that they did what I assume most uh, professional fishermen would do when you've got time to kill and you're by a big uh, lake that's known for fishing, they went fishing. So it says they they all went out on the boats, uh, and they went fishing, and they'd been out all night, and they hadn't caught a single thing. And dawn is about uh, to come up, and this is when Jesus enters the story, and it says this. At dawn, Jesus was standing on the beach, but the disciples couldn't see who he was. He called out, Fellows, have you caught any fish? 
Firstly, I love how this, this translation makes Jesus sound like a really posh Englishman. The word fellows. I say, fellows? Have you caught any fish? But it says that the disciples actually didn't recognize him. They didn't know that it was Jesus. Now, this could be maybe that as the sun's rising up, the sun's in their eyes and it's blinding them. And they just can't quite make out who it is. Maybe it's the, the mist that's coming up from the lake that's just obscuring their view of Jesus. Personally, I like to think that Jesus, uh, to have a little bit of fun, he puts on different disguises. And so he's decided to wear a suit and a bowler hat with a cane, and he's just speaking in a posh English accent to throw them off. But that's probably an inaccurate um, representation of what's happening here. But they don't, they don't recognize Jesus. And so Jesus begins to speak to them. He says this, No, they replied. Then he said, Throw out your net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will get some. Now, let's remember, these guys are professional fishermen by trade. And they've been out all night trying to catch fish, which, by the way, was the best time to catch fish, because in the daytime, the fish would actually go deeper down into the water, um, but at nighttime, they would come up towards the surface, making, making it easier for them to catch them. But they've been out all night, and they hadn't caught a thing. And now someone who they don't recognize is then shouting advice and telling them what they should do. I just wonder, how would you feel in this situation? You know, you're tired, you've been up all night, probably cold, frustrated that you haven't caught anything. And now somebody who's just a random guy on the shore is telling you that you should try again when it's dawn and it's like not the good time to catch fish. How frustrated would you be with that? You know, this would be like me uh, going up to a random doctor and telling them how to perform CPR, or going up to a Formula One driver and telling them how to drive a car. But the amazing thing is, the disciples actually do it. It says this. So they did, and they couldn't haul in the net because there were so many fish in it. Then the disciple Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. Uh, again, we see John here referring to himself very affectionately as the disciple that Jesus loved. Um, he definitely knew that he was loved. I think we can say that about John. And in this moment, he recognizes who it is. He recognizes it's Jesus. And that's because this actually isn't the first time Jesus has performed these miracles with the disciples. We actually see an account of this early on in uh, Luke chapter 5, I believe it is, uh, where Jesus tells them to do the same thing, and they catch so many fish, and it says their nets actually begin to break. And so as this happens, uh, John just recognizes, wait, it's Jesus. And it goes on to say this, that when Simon Peter heard that, the, that it was the Lord, he put on his tunic, for he had stripped for work. He jumped into the water and headed to shore. Again, we see this passion of, of Peter in this moment. It says that he jumps into the water because he wants to get to, uh, to Jesus as quick as he can. I love just seeing this passion that he has. And it says that he actually uh, he had, wasn't wearing his tunic, presumably because he didn't want to get it wet while he was fishing. But now he doesn't care about getting it wet. He actually puts it on and jumps into the water. He's just desperate to get to Jesus. And actually, culturally... Um, being appropriately, 
appropriately dressed was a really big deal in their culture. And it's actually a really important thing to do when you were greeting somebody to make sure that you were dressed correctly, uh, and particularly if it's someone of, uh, who is considered to be important. So he puts on his tunic to, as a way of showing respect and honor towards Jesus, and he dives into the water and rushes to see them. And he goes on to say, when they got there, they found breakfast waiting for them. Fish cooking over a charcoal fire and some bread. Now this might seem like somewhat of a, a random detail to be added in, a pretty insignificant detail. But I actually feel like this is really significant. Because this is where Jesus has set the scene for Peter. You see, uh, when, you, when you look at the scriptures, this word charcoal fire is found only twice in scripture. Once here, where Peter is about to have his encounter with Jesus, and the other time, earlier on in chapter 18 of John, where Peter is betraying Jesus. In John 18, 18, it says this, Because it was cold, the household servants and the guards had made a charcoal fire. They stood around it, warming themselves, and Peter stood with them, warming himself. The charcoal fire was the scene of Peter's denial. It was the scene of his place of failure. And now they're sat around it again, and he's facing the one that he has betrayed. He's, see, he's looking into the eyes of the one that he has failed. Now, I wonder if you were in that position, if you were the one that was looking at someone who had betrayed you, what would you want to say to this person? Maybe you'd want to shout at them. Maybe you'd want to make it really clear that they knew what they'd done to you. Maybe you'd just want to grill them and ask them questions as to why they did it. Maybe you'd actually just want to avoid the whole topic altogether. You'd want to avoid them altogether. Maybe you wouldn't even be able to look at them. Well, Jesus actually has a very different response in this moment. It goes on to say, After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now remember, Peter was the one that said, even if everyone else denies you, I will never deny you. Do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. Jesus repeated the question, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Yes, Lord, Peter said. You know I love you. Then take care of my sheep, Jesus said. A third time he asked him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt that Jesus asked the question a third time. He said, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said, then feed my sheep. So Jesus begins to ask this question three times. Peter, do you love me? And three times, uh, Peter responds with, yes, you know I love you. And by the third time of being asked, Peter's hurt. It's like, oh, how can you ask me this question again? But 
the reason Jesus is asking three times is not because he doesn't believe Peter. You know, it can seem as you're reading this, it's almost like Jesus is trying to poke the wound. And in a sense, he kind of is. He's try- because Jesus, in this moment, he's not asking because he doesn't believe him. He's asking because he's trying to bring restoration to the place of Peter's pain. The place in Peter's heart where he feels like he's failed Jesus. This is not Jesus poking at the wound. This is Jesus just bringing this beautiful picture of restoration back to him. So he actually, if you think, Jesus asks him three times. And this, this is because you know, Peter denied him, declared a denial against Jesus three times. And so he's three times having him declare again that he loves Jesus. And as he does this, each time he's recalling, he's reaffirming Peter's calling to feed his sheep, to lead the church. But there's an interesting detail in this interaction that Peter has with Jesus that's so easy to miss. You see, in the English language, we have just one word for love that we use for a multitude of different situations. So, for example, I say, you know, I love my wife. I also say, I love my chicken sandwich. It's the same word, very different context, right? But actually, in the, uh, the ancient Greek language, they actually had a variety of different words for love, each with a specific meaning designated to a specific situation. And interestingly, the word that Jesus uses when he says, Peter, do you love me, is different to the word that Peter uses when he responds. You see, when Jesus asks uh, Peter, do you love me, he uses this word, he uses agapeo, which means a love which the entire personality, including the will, is involved. You know, this is a kind of love that sent Jesus to die on the cross for us. It's a sacrificial love that involves active will on our behalf. It's the kind of love that gets a mother out of bed to feed her child even when all she wants to do is sleep. You know, it's possible, and hopefully very possible, for me to say that I agapeo my wife. But it would be a bit odd for me to say I agapeo my chicken sandwich. You know, I, I love my chicken sandwich with a deep commitment and sacrifice. It's a bit weird, right? So Jesus says, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you love me with a deep conviction, with a deep sacrifice, an act of will? But Peter actually responds by saying that he phileos him, which means an emotional connection that goes beyond casual friendships. Now, this, this kind of love is a, a love that is a love of feelings. It's an emotion. It's passion, which we see time and time again with Peter throughout the Scripture. And it's a, it's a, it's a kind of love that is often used in terms of brotherly love, brotherly affection. It's an intimate friendship with somebody. But it, it lacks that commitment, that act of the will, that sacrificial aspect that agapeo has. And so we see this interaction with Jesus saying, do you agapeo me? And and Peter's like, well, you know, I I, I phileo you. And so twice Jesus asks him, do you agapeo me? 
And the interesting thing is that actually uh, the third time that Jesus asks, he also uses the word phileo. And the scriptures don't really make it clear as to why these two different words are being used. And, and even biblical scholars kind of debate backwards and forwards about the significance of this, because, particularly because John does have a tendency to sometimes flip between these two words in, in the scriptures. But I just wonder if, you know, when Jesus asks that question, there's a sting to it. And Peter, in his mind, like, he knows that he does genuinely love Jesus. But he's got this, this moment in his mind, this memory of the failure. And he can't bring himself to say the words agapeo. He's like, I, I was tested and I failed. So all he can bring himself to do is say phileo. I just wonder if the reason Jesus ends up using these words is because he's kind of saying, okay, so you're saying that you phileo love me. You have this emotional connection with me. You have this intimate friendship with me. But then I, I believe what we read next, he actually says, well, actually, Peter, I have news for you. You do agapeo me. It goes on to say this. It says, I tell you the truth. When you were young, you were able to do as you liked. You dressed yourself and went wherever you wanted to go. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and others will dress you and take you where you don't want to go. Jesus said this to let him know by what kind of death he would glorify God. Then Jesus told him, follow me. Now, firstly, this, this might seem like a really odd and slightly messed up ending to this interaction, right? <clears throat> Jesus tells him how he's going to die. I mean, who wants to know that? Like, that's weird. And if, if I had just read chapter eight, uh, verse 18 on its own, I'd, I'd honestly be at a complete loss as to what Jesus was talking about. So I'm thankful that it tells us that Jesus is saying this to let him know by what kind of death he would he would glorify God. And this, Jesus doesn't say this to kind of put him down or just to kind of put the nail in the coffin. He actually tells him this, and this is the, the pinnacle moment of Peter's restoration. This is the fulfillment of his restoration because Peter denied Jesus because he didn't want to die for him. And in this moment, Jesus is saying, you do agapeo me. In fact, you will die for me. Your love for me is such that you will give your life for me. This is a moment of restoration for Peter. Now, he's not putting him down. He's actually just reaffirming their connection. He's reaffirming him as someone who loves Jesus. And in this moment, he says to him the same words that he said on the same sea of Galilee when he first met Peter, he says, follow me. Follow me. Again, just reaffirming his calling to be a disciple of Jesus. To be the one who leads his church. Now, the Bible actually doesn't give us an account of the death of Peter, but church history tells us that he was actually crucified upside down outside Rome. Peter did, in fact, go on to die for Jesus. Now, this is such a beautiful story of Peter's redemption. 
But how many of you know that Peter's story can be your story too? How many of you know that the place in you where you feel like you've messed up beyond repair, the relationship that's too damaged, the thing in you that you can never change can be absolutely transformed by Jesus. I believe that Jesus wants to give each of us a Peter restoration moment in our lives. See, the good news is that we are not defined by our failure. We are not defined by our failure. You know, Peter, shortly after this, he went on to preach to the crowds, and it says in one moment that 3,000 people came to relationship with Jesus. Peter, who went from denying him to save his own life, went to boldly preaching and proclaiming the gospel and seeing thousands come into relationship. Peter is the proof that nobody is beyond restoration. Peter is the proof that God never writes anybody off. Peter is the proof that you are not written off. Now, I don't know what your place of failure is. I don't know what your place of insecurity is, what are the things that are holding you back. But I believe today that Jesus wants to give some of you a Peter restoration moment. So as we close the service, I want to take some time just to pray and invite God to speak. So I'm just going to pray and I'm going to pause and just see what God wants to say. And I'm just going to, whatever, he, whatever I feel like he's sharing, I just want to share it with you. I just want you to be in that place of just receiving and listening to what God has to say to you as well. So let's just take a moment to pray and invite God. Father, we thank you for sending your son to die on a cross for us. Jesus, we thank you that you're the God of restoration. That you are a God of redemption. God, I thank you that no one in this room, no one watching online, no one is beyond restoration. That you have not written anybody off. God, I thank you that no matter how much we've blown it, no matter what mistake we've made, no matter how we see ourselves, You have a calling and a purpose and an identity in you. So God, would you just speak? Would you come and just speak to us and just speak just as you did with Peter to those painful places in our heart, the places where maybe we've hidden from other people? Just come and speak and bring healing and restoration right now. have a sense that uh, some people uh, just as they've been listening to this there's just there's a place of uh, just sexual brokenness in your life and maybe you've just been caught in in sexual sin uh, just repeated habitual sin or maybe there's just been a, a real painful place in your past where something happened to you and you've allowed it to to define and shape your life 
maybe you've just thought this is something that you'll always have to deal with, something that you'll always carry. Jesus is just saying, I want to restore you. I want to restore your purity. Jesus, we thank you that you are able to restore people's purity. God, I thank you that you are able to set captives free. Lord, would you just come and do that right now? I just think maybe there's some people uh, who are listening and uh, you just have this belief about yourself that you're worthless, that you're, you're not important enough, that you're not good enough. Maybe this is just a thought that you have on a regular basis, not good enough, not worthy enough, not valuable enough. Jesus wants to say to you, I died for you. The Bible says, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. John 15. That's the truth about you. You are worth dying for. He cares about you. He sees you. You are significant. And he has great plans for you. maybe there's some of you who uh, maybe you feel like you're failing in the home like you're, you're letting your family down maybe you don't feel like a good enough parent, uh, maybe there's tension in your relationship with your kids or maybe it's in your marriage you feel like uh, you've let your wife or your, your husband down maybe you just feel like it, think the relationship is just too torn, there's too much damage and Jesus is just saying, I can make all things new. In fact, I believe Jesus wants to make it better than it has ever been. Jesus wants to help you to restore those relationships, to mend the brokenness. So Jesus, would you come? Whoever that is, just come and bring healing and comfort and just give them wisdom and guidance on how they can bring restoration in their family. Jesus, we just pray whatever it is for different people in this room or online. God, we pray that we would not leave without doing business in our hearts with you. You know the, the life. You know every moment of our lives. You know our places of restoration. You know our places of need. God, would you just bring restoration to every single one of us. God, I thank you that no matter what, that restoration is always available. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening today. To listen to more messages like this one, head to our website at antiochsheffield.org.uk forward slash podcast. We are looking forward to seeing you soon.